Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's collection of reflections on Ward Stone, an environmental activist who passed away. Then Willie Terry asks Brother X to respond to the police killing of Tyree Nichols. Later on, we speak with Professor Kevin Hickey about his African film series and the topics within. After that, Marsha Lazarus asks Fred Miller about culture change within corporations. And then finally, Sina Basile Hickey and photographer Robert Cooper visit the Gordon Parks exhibition. But first, here are the headlines. Representative Paul Tonko was recently selected to serve on key house subcommittees focused on energy and environmental issues. Anchored in his role as ranking member of the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Environment, Manufacturing, and Critical Minerals, Tonko will also serve on the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Energy, Climate, and Grid Security. Wayne Jedron has been appointed as Rensselaer County Legislator for District 4, replacing Scott Bendict, who was elected to the New York State Assembly last fall. Gendron will represent Sand Lake, Skodak, and Nassau. The Gazette reports that the global shortage of semiconductors still cripples the U.S. auto production. General Motors has signed a deal with chipmaker Global Foundries in Malta, New York, to dedicate part of their factory to supply the automaker. It will take at least two years for the chips to start flowing as the company installs equipment and chips are designed. New vehicles now have more than 1,000 chips in them. The Schenectady County Recreational Facility, which houses an ice rink, will get a $2.5 million upgrade. Changes include a 4,660-square-foot addiction for the new locker rooms and parking lot improvements using federal coronavirus relief funding. The New York State United Teachers Union says it is fighting the state's new plan to allow more than 100 new charter schools because some school districts, including Albany and Troy, are paying so much to charter, it's more than their entire increase in foundation aid over the last six years. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad, broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmmmediasanctuary.org or call 518 518- Ward Stone, who served as the state's wildlife pathologist for over four decades, died on February 8th. Roger Downs of the Sierra Club said, Ward shone a light 
on environmental threats long before others could notice them and gave a science-based voice to nature in times of crisis when few other state officials would listen. He always chose to pursue environmental justice first before pointless bureaucracy, end quote. Mark Dunley brings us this report. Ward Stone, the longtime state wildlife pathologist who helped uncover the threat of PCBs in the Hudson and St. Lawrence rivers decades ago, and whose name was synonymous with environmental activism, died Wednesday. Ward was a maverick who believed he worked for the people of New York and often did research that was not sanctioned by his higher-ups at DEC. We hear from local environmentalists Lynn Jackson and Judith Ank about Ward, and then a brief clip from Ward himself from a 2018 interview I did with him. We're joined by uh, Lynn Jackson, who among other things have been very active with Save the Pine Bush. So, so Lynn, I understand you actually met uh, Ward uh, more than 50 years ago, but um, well, you know, what was some of your reactions and thoughts about uh, Ward? Well, Ward Stone was um, just a really uh, powerful speaker and advocate for the environment. Um, I first heard him speak when I was a student in the Environmental Forum at SUNY Albany, and I was amazed at the kinds of things that he was talking about. He had a slide presentation that discussed some of the issues he found in wildlife in New York State. And I was just amazed that, you know, he studied this and that these things were happening in our environment. What disturbed me is that uh, many years later, we invited him to come and speak to one of our Save the Pine Bush lasagna dinners. And this was maybe 10 or 15 years later. And his presentation was almost identical because I thought if he had found these issues and problems in wildlife, that surely someone would have done something about them by then. But it is really hard to make these changes. One of the things that Ward Stone uh, focused on a lot was the issue of lead in the environment. And lead is a very serious environmental hazard. Of course, it's a hazard for animals and it's a hazard for uh, people. And he focused a lot, a lot about lead, even to the point of later on, he and his daughter would uh, would buy children's toys and Ward would analyze the toys for the amount of lead in the toys. Um, but overall, Ward Stone was just an advocate for the environment. He did very solid uh, scientific research. He knew his facts, he knew what was going on and he would talk about these issues and these issues are really important to bring to the forefront so that that we can actually um, address the issues of the toxic chemicals in the environment like lead and cadmium and other extremely toxic uh, substances. Did you actually ever say anything about or involved with the Save the Pine Bush effort? So Wardstone would come and speak at our Save the Pine Bush dinners. And of course, when he came, lots of people would come to hear him because people wanted to hear him. And that was a really a very good help to us because he was able to um, attract more people. And he was a big supporter of Save the Pine Bush. And Save the Pine Bush in the early years, it was hard because 
our tactics were not something people liked. We were involved in litigation, a lot of litigation. And we were not popular because of that. But because Ward Stone supported us and he supported our litigation, it really gave us quite a boost because he always spoke so nicely about, say, the pine bush and was really an advocate for pine bush preservation, which I really appreciated very much. Well, thank you very much, Lynn Jackson. We hear next from uh, Judith Ank, who is a former EPA regional administrator and, and also head of Beyond Plastic. Judith, what are some of your thoughts about Ward Stone? Well, I'm very sad for Ward and his family in particular that he's passed. Ward was an extraordinary environmental protector. He served as the New York Department of Environmental Conservation um, wildlife pathologist. And I actually don't think if they, I don't think they replaced him as the state's um, chief wildlife staff person. He really went out of his way to support communities that were struggling with serious environmental problems like PCBs and pesticides and the Albany Answers garbage incinerator. And I have this great memory of Ward helping us when we were working to shut down the Albany Answers garbage incinerator, which often rained uh, black soot particulate matter all over Arbor Hill, a low-income uh, community of color in downtown Albany. Well, one night the wind was blowing in a different direction after a snowstorm and this black oily soot fell on the lawn of Governor Mario Cuomo's governor's mansion in Albany. Um, we called Ward to ask him to come out and take some samples, which he rapidly did. Um, two days later, another snowstorm, more sampling, and Ward was able to document that this particulate matter was loaded with toxic materials, including heavy metals. When we met with state officials, they claimed that we had no basis to call for the shutdown of this garbage incinerator. And we said, oh, yes, we do. We have, we have test results. And um, they said, well, we don't have test results. And I said, of course you don't. You've never wanted to document the problem. But Ward Stone did some sampling for us and we shared it with them and they were dumbfounded. There was a new Albany mayor at the time, a young guy named Jerry Jennings. He used that information working with environmentalists to finally get Mario Cuomo to shut down this polluting incinerator in downtown Albany this never would have happened without Ward Stone's hard work and support. So Ward was a little bit unusual as a state worker in that he seemed to believe that he worked for the people of New York rather than necessarily uh, the higher ups in his administration. Um, are there a couple other issues where you saw Ward really providing some very needed support to grassroots groups? Yes, many. Um, Hudson River PCBs pesticides on Long Island. Um, he was very close uh, to the indigenous nations in New York. He helped the Mohawks um, up on the St. Lawrence River deal with a range of pollution problems from GM and Alcoa. Um, Ward did believe that his role as a public servant was to serve the public 
and not necessarily the commissioner of his agency or the governor. Thank you, Judith. Thank you. Next, Woodstone. Well, one of the things you did explore over the years, which is somewhat back in the news these days, was the Albany Ansys Garbage Incinerator on, on, on Sheridan Avenue. Uh, the, the, the governor, Governor Cuomo, the new Governor Cuomo, uh, you know, wants to put two new gas turbines um, to once again, uh, you know, basically pollute that neighborhood for another 30 years. But when you're looking at answers, so this garbage incinerator, the state operated in, I guess, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, what are some of the problems that you discovered? I discovered that there were poor people in the vicinity of that plant, and there was a lot of fallout of particulate material from the old garbage burning plant that they had down there. And they had two, two sources of uh, energy production. One was getting it out of the garbage that was being burned. The other was burning Bunker C oil, a heavy oil, and producing um, electricity and heat for state buildings there. I found that that was a heck of a mess. I don't know the answers to this day to some of the questions that appeared in my mind. I went down there one, one day about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. I had my state ID. I took a state car, went down, and I looked for uh, ways of getting in the building and letting them know that I was there because I could see the smoke coming out, and I wanted to see the plant in operation because I was curious as to about the kind of pollution that would be coming out. You have to be too smart to figure that burning solid waste the way they were doing, there would be a myriad of pollutants coming out from lead to carcinogens to things like dioxin. That would be dangerous for people. Presente Ward, Wardstone. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And Wardstone has left a great imprint on the environmental justice community with the influence of his work continues to motivate us all. Willie Terry reached out to Brother X, a regular commentator on Black community, history, and issues in the Albany area. They discussed the killing of Tyree Nichols by the Memphis police, and here is his take. We uh, set up this interview today because uh, I want to uh, get your perspective on uh, what's happening, what happened to Tyrone Nichols, and I think that's what you want to you know, let us know. So yes. give me your thoughts on that situation well um if we look at it a young man again was stopped um, by police officers and things quickly went awry and he was brutalized on camera amongst uh several uh, police officials and ambulance members and things of that nature and he was beat so badly that he died a few days later and right now uh his family is up in arms and uh, uh, so entities that come out when there's black death, they come out and uh, profit off it. And I wanted to give the people the understanding about the rinse, wash, repeat scenario that happens when a black man is killed by police officials. Now, in this instance, um, the color of the racial identity of said officers are black. There are certain whites that have been deliberately are removed from being the face of basically the assassination or brutalization of uh, Brother Tyree Nichols. Um, and that's being uncovered uh, by certain black media outlets and forcing the mainstream media to recognize 
uh, all the officers that were involved and his father also mentioned that as well in an interview that certain individuals are left out and they want to know who those individuals are so they can be brought to justice ultimately in this country uh, I mentioned the color codes of Dr. Francis Welsing about the dynamics between black and white and um, part of that code stems with the military apparatus of America which is the police force the soldiers of the military apparatus of white supremacy is the police force and they control said black community and they have un unbridled power when it comes to us and them and this was asked to me uh, during the time that Elazar Williams was shot in the back uh, a member asked me about the relationship between blacks and whites or more specifically the the officers police officers in the black community and said there was no relationship the relationship had been the same since the creation of the police force uh, which were slave patrols right to bring back property that ran astray and they were to bring the property back to the ownership and so now the dynamic has not changed we're still seen as uh, objects to be controlled and, and dominated and uh, 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 seen as uh, entities to be had by someone else to be owned by someone else and so um, when you look at the police department now there's so many different things that are going on that people aren't aware of uh, one of the things is and I mentioned this before in the previous interview with you, um, the white supremacists that have infiltrated police forces, police academies with supremacist ideology to harm black lives and black bodies to control and dominate, they made their overtures to police academies and have been granted the ability to have a badge, to have a gun, and to administer their brand of justice to save the community. Uh, from what I understand, Brother Professor Griffin, I'll, I'll, I'll reference him, talked about trying to become a police officer and, and talked about the fact that, that uh, the officials who were doing the hiring wanted aggressive, uh, uh, powerful-looking white men to be a part of the police force. And when you find that certain situations like this occur, that these individuals sometimes, sometimes get fired, very rarely go to jail, but really what they do is transfer to another police force once their name dies down, once the heat around uh, what they did dies down, then they go to another police force. Now, the philosophy with the force is about dominating black males, right? The chief opposition to white males is black males, right? So if you are a black male and you do have the opportunity to be a part of the police force, you have to have the same ideology, you have the same thought process, you have, the same, you have to have the same hatred for your own kind that even though you look in the mirror and you see a melanated individual, your actions would denotate that you hate whom you are, right? And so the other officers see that code, because the real code about uh, 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 police officers is about dominating black people, right? That's number one. Number two is, you know, hey, don't snitch on the, the police, another officer never rises to the code of the blue and back to blue and all that other stuff. But what's not talked about is your treatment of black males. And so, they will be championed, right, within the force because of their actions to this man. And so a lot of black officers... Well, do it, just a uh, point, uh, do, it, do it just apply to black males? Because I mean, recently wasn't there black women that was uh, roughed up by police? Yes, yes, yes. Black people, <laughs> uh, black people in general, uh, black males more specifically because we're the military arm of our ethnic group. 
right? If any war is going to be won, anything is going to be fought, any protection is going to be administered, it's going to be administered by the males. Oh, I right? think I think so, I think women would have a. <laughs> They would object to that. They they don't. Absolutely. They 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 struggle. They involved in the struggle. <laughs> they do struggle. They do struggle. But uh, the chief military apparatus mm -hmm. in defense of our community should be males. There's no other discussion amongst the other ethnic groups. That's the problem with our our community. We give our women too much power. The other ethnic groups understand when it comes to fighting, mm -hmm. bleeding and dying, that the front line should be male. Whatever other uh, other you can discuss other jobs or whatever they talk, talk in terms of military defense you can discuss that with any you know uh, 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 other ethnic group and they know that it's the males front line now everything else is up for debate this isn't so the attack the strong attack is against the male not to say that women don't get attacked but you see how Tyree was brutalized and it, it's rare that, that it happens to women in that in that way where five and six and seven officers are beat down a woman uh, uh, I, even I can say <laughs> white supremacists aren't that cowardly, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be surprised to see them do it. But uh, uh, more specifically, it, 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 that 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 particular type of attack is on the males. And so, what I understand as well, uh, to get personal in this situation in regards to Tyree, uh, one of the so-called brothers within uh, the attack and apparatus of the police department that had put hands on him had a um, woman who had his children and apparently Tyree was seeing her and so it, the police operate as a gang any type of disrespect in a gang culture if you deal with it, the gang culture so many killings that happen in our streets and it's not just the ethnic group where black people all ethnic groups have gangs right and usually when there's a killing of sorts there's a disrespect from one gang member to the other right and so one is disrespected, he goes back, tells his comrades, they come back in force to deal with the individual who disrespected. And so imagine a hyped up, angry officer who has a connection to a military. Once you have that badge, you have a connection to all of the military in the United States. So you kind of walk around with your chest out. You're protected. If something were to happen to you and they put that code down, man down, officers are coming from everywhere helicopters, if they got to get to SWAT, you got the army, you get, <laughs> they get access to all this stuff, right? So you walk around with a chest, with your chest out. So in essence, when it comes to personal things, you feel the same way. Right. But that, whoever's connected to me. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about how quickly the situation was dealt with. Like, uh, you know, um, and, and I know uh, the lawyer was talking about it, 19 days, you know, this came about and the solution they came about, these uh, five or six cops got fired. And in the past, that haven't been the case. Right, right. Let me, let me, let me finish this point, because this point is very, very important. Okay, right. go ahead. So, with the officer, one of the officers that, that were involved in it, like I said, is, is, is uh, the lady that he was dealing with, or had been dealing with, or continued to deal with it, whoever knows, she had his children. He felt the way that Tyree was dating her. Maybe something happened within that relationship or whatever have you. Uh, same thing happened with uh, 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 with the brother that just got, got killed by Derek Chauvin. I, I, his name's Floyd. Uh, 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 George, yeah, Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. The same thing happened with two of them. That George was dealing with one of the uh, uh, Derek Chauvin's women or a girl he was interested in or whatever have you. And so he used his mic that he had 
with that badge to get at him specifically because he felt a certain way about that dating thing, right? And this, so this was a factual thing. Or? Yes, yes, or, or, yes. Or they had known each other. Social yes, media. They had known each other beforehand. Oh, I didn't. They had known each other before. Oh yeah, okay. That's the beauty. Yes, that's the beauty. See, that's the beauty of social media because mainstream media only gives you a certain percentage of news. Those uh, those who really investigate, right, are people in social media, and they find things out. They get the things a lot faster than mainstream because they have a corporate sponsor, a top a top head that says, "Hey, you can't put that out," or you, they know about it. They just purposely don't put it out. The people who are uh, 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 black media. They don't have anybody control them. They're independent. So they can put out all the information they need to, and now we get a broader picture of what's going on. And that was part two of this interview. In part one, Brother X speaks about his background and his path to activism. These segments can be found on our website at mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Andrea Conliffe. You are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. If you spread the word, that does a lot to help us. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now we welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine professor Kevin Hickey. We spoke with you, Kevin, a couple weeks ago regarding the uh, amazing African Ameri- uh, African film festival or film series. So welcome once again. Andrea, thank you very much. Happy to be back. Well, great. Now, remind us a little bit of who you are and why you've been presenting these absolutely unique films at, for this festival. And, la- and what, for 18 years now? Uh, yes, I teach Africana studies, which means Africa and its diaspora, um, Africans in the Caribbean, North America, etc. And I guess the second year after I started teaching at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, which is right across from Albany Med and uh, right next to Albany Law, for those who like want to uh, come to uh, next week's uh, film showing, and... So since the second year, I've been showing each year three Africana films, which means that most of them have been uh, by African directors in Africa, but occasionally it's uh, been about Africans in the Caribbean or Africans in uh, the U.S. or Africans in Europe. And uh, so each each year there is a, is a theme, and this year it is the erased roots of uh, African music, uh, specifically the erasure of the importance of African musics to um, flamenco and in two weeks the influence of uh, African music to tango. So it's not just uh, music, but also dance and singing. And then uh, next week is not so much about uh, erased roots, but the important roots of uh, music 
uh, sort of the cross-pollination of musics between Mali in West Africa and Cuba. Well, I saw the last film, which was really brilliant. That was a wonderful um, film. And I'm, I'm finding this really especially interesting um, in this time in our lives, in history, that um, these films you're bringing to the forefront, because it's not simply just African music. It's a history of Africa, a history of the African people, um, a lot more. Do you want to talk a bit about what that means to you? Well, I'll make two points. First, um, this film series is based upon the importance of, of a couple of things, one of which is the public space. And uh, public space is fundamental, as really, in many ways, the philosophy of the Sanctuary for Independent Media is based upon this idea. And so it's not just bringing people together to watch films on African culture and history and and what it means to be African and experiences of, of Africans. Uh, but it's also a place where we we follow each film with a robust conversation. And that's really fundamental to to this idea of the public space, which is fundamental to making the world a better place by exchanging ideas with with people, uh, in this case, people that uh, are unknown to other members of the audience. Um, now, as for Africa, um, of course, all parts of the world are important to culture and history and, and all sorts of things. But there has been a an erasure of the importance of Africa to world cultures that is has been stronger and and has been going on a, a, for a more time than the erasure of, of other cultures. And so we saw in 2018 how Morocco, which is, of course, a country in Africa, how, how Morocco has systematically attempted to erase its West African roots and heritage. And uh, so I think it's particularly important uh, because if we want to make a better world, we need to be informed. And of course, we can never be even close to fully informed. But at least if we are as informed as we can be and are more informed next year than we are this year about the importance of Africa and uh, people of Africa and African history and African cultures, then we're taking at least small steps towards making the world a better place. Well, it was Terribly interesting because I learned a great deal at, at the last viewing about the migration of African peoples and how they reached the uh, the coast, the Mediterranean, Spanish and Portuguese coast and how that music had influenced their lives, their dancing, their art, everything. And I think uh, it's kind of wonderful to watch. Now, we have a new film. Um, coming up on Tuesday night. Can you give me an idea of what that's about? I think you said Cuban music. Is that right? Uh, yes, this coming Tuesday, beginning at 7 o'clock in our student center, uh, we're going to be watching uh, the Mali-Cuban connect Cuba connection. And... and um, uh, we have looked at this also in, in other years. And so just very basically, people of Africa were, of course, kidnapped, enslaved and taken to the Americas. And in the Americas, they developed musics that were rooted in their African heritages, but then also um, cross-pollinating with, with uh, influences from Europe, 
and and influences of the indigenous populations in the Americas. Well, I know and, it's really exciting. I mean, first of all, Buena Vista Social Club, I think, is featured in this film or mentioned in the film. I mean, that music is fantastic. It made everybody dance for for years and still is. Um, is this yes. the kind of thing we're talking about? Yes. Well, well. Um, so, so then what happened is we had all of these new musics in the Americas, and then those went back and influenced the musics in 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 Africa. Now, of course, I'm using the plural musics because um, there are different different styles of of, of music in various parts of uh, of the continent. And so, for instance. Cuban music then influenced Senegalese music and produced uh, groups like uh, Orchestra Baobab. It went back and through jazz in particular uh, influenced uh, Sukus in Central Africa. And it also influenced the music of Mali. So for instance, the, um, the Saharan blues movement is, as you can imagine, very much influenced by um, the blues and uh, as well as musics from Cuba that came back and cross-pollinated. So in a sense, Africa sent out music. It was reconceptualized and then it returned to Africa and then worked to reconceptualize the musics in Africa. So it's this very rich conversation. It's a very evolving situation or subject and music is fantastic but i think you know it's really important for music and art to have a place in multicultural societies or any society you get such a nice variety it's so important and these films i mean they've been great fun we had lots of music in the last one is it similar to what we'll have this time oh, there'll be more music uh oh, next week brilliant yeah. that's wonderful well i know um the remaining, the, the next two days, one is next Tuesday, which is the 14th. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Then we're skipping a week. And, and then, then we're having yeah. the 28th. And and the 28th, what, what film will that be? Will that be a music-oriented film as well? Yes, that's a Tango Negro. So that Ooh. is looking at um, the African roots also erased traditionally um in in the importance of of uh africa to the development of the music and the dancing of the tango fabulous do you tango <laughs> i no? do not no oh I no oh i took classes i took classes at one point i'm sorry i pre i think i'm probably more kind to dance to cuban music or yeah. um yeah that kind of thing rather than tango. Well, never mind. Okay, so remember the dates, the times. It's on Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. I know that's a real adventure to find you. Um, you want to give us a little indication of how we can find you on Tuesday night? Oh, by the way, it's free, isn't it? It's open to the public and free. It's open to the public. It's free. Yay! Uh, and it includes food. Oh, Okay. I'm okay, so we can work. Which up is an also appetite. free. Which is also free. So free food, free drink, free film, and, free conversation, um, free conversation. And you know, I haven't tried this, but I bet if you put in Africana or even African film 
Albany, I bet it would come up on a search engine. So you don't have to remember. I mean, of course, if you remember Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, or even just Albany College of Pharmacy, African film, uh, then there's a whole web page for the uh, film, including directions on how to find the the, the building where the film series is. It also gives a, a history of all the films we've seen in the past uh, uh, 19 years. Well, thank you so much for coming by and talking with us and for bringing this amazing series of African films to uh, to us. And I'm so glad I found it. So we'll see you again on Tuesday night. Thank you very much for your time tonight. My pleasure and my thanks to the sanctuary for all the good work and uh, including this program. So see you next week. Okay, next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank Ooh. you. Bye-bye. That was great, Cena. So you're going to be there next week, too? We'll see. There's the radio show, but absolutely, that was ah, a really great. that's right. And the website is actually quite easy. It's acphs.edu slash Africana dash film dash series. And, so and those if you can remember keywords, that. <laughs> it'll be in the notes. <laughs> Our OOC, uh, we broadcast some very good uh, African Diasporic music. music. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Wonderful stuff. Okay. And next fourth up. segment, Fred Miller, right? Yes. Has, has been CEO of Khalil Jameson's Consulting Group since 1985 and with the organization since 1979. He spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine's correspondent, Marsha Lazarus, about Khalil Jameson's strategy to facilitate culture change and greater collaboration, diversity, and inclusion within corporations. Our reputation is we don't mess around. We're gonna deal with things, we're gonna address things, we're gonna call them the way they are, and we're gonna demand change. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus, and it is my pleasure to be sitting here with Fred Miller of the Khalil Jameson Consulting Group based in Troy, New York. Fred is CEO of Khalil Jameson. Fred, you've been in that role since 1985 yes. and with the organization since 1979. Correct. It's been a wonderful journey and an incredible time to be involved in organizational change. So I'd like to start with the organization. And I just want to say, reading the description of your mission, on your website, the, the passion just comes across so clearly. And it reads, Khalil Jameson focuses on assisting organizations in creative, inclusive, collaborative workplaces that unleash the talent and creativity of their people. Well, one, thank you very much for uh, interviewing me and for me being involved in this process. Um, I have a lot of appreciation for you and the work of the organization. And I would just add that I've been doing this work for 53 years. So I've been around a long time. I often describe myself as a dinosaur that can still dance. I, because I've seen a lot. I first started doing work around what's, what's now called diversity and stuff in, in 1972. Um, so it's been a while. Fred, the mission of the organization sounds like one that would be very hard to argue with. But would you say that some organizations want that kind of unleashing and talent of all their people, and some 
are less attuned in that direction. Organizations wanting it, and we're, we're lucky. Um, we have a great national and international reputation. And so again and again, organizations will call us and say that we've heard of you, we've heard of the work that you, you do, and we're very interested in working with you. So we have people coming to us trying to encourage us to work with them. What that does is that they already have thought about how serious they are. And we're a consulting firm that works with an organization from two to three to four years. So we're there a lot. We're probably there monthly during that time trying to bear about organization change because culture change takes time. And people talk about it takes like seven or eight years to change a culture. Nobody, nobody has seven or eight years to change their culture anymore. We have to change these cultures and start changing them in six months and have them be different in 18 months. And so our work is really an acceleration of culture change for organizations so that people can have a different experience than they're having now. We talk about working with good organizations that want to be better. So I love our clients. They're, they're good organizations. They mean well. They probably have tried to do some things around change. They've had some success, but now's the time to accelerate success. And I keep saying to our clients again and again, you got to go faster. You got to go faster. And so an acceleration of change, because one, people are not going to tolerate what they would tolerate in the old days. When I was a young person coming into the organization, I came to the organization corporation the first time in 68. My father had worked for the same place for 39 years. And I felt like that's what it means to be a worker. That's what it means to go. I'm going to go to Connecticut General Life Insurance Company, and I'm going to be there 30 years or so so that I can kind of be a successful person employee. My children, they're both in their 30s now. I tell them, and I didn't have to tell them because they're already doing this, if they go to a job for one hour and not treat it right or think they're respected, they're out of there. They're not waiting 39 years. They're not waiting two years. They're not waiting two weeks. It's like, how are people going to treat me? Are they going to give me opportunities? Am I going to learn and grow? Am I going to increase my portfolio of skills as a result of this experience? And that's just not my children. That's this whole generation that's in organizations and coming to organizations. So organizations have to change quickly because they're not going to have the talent they need. An organization without talent fails. So a critical, critical factor is how do I get talent, retain talent, attract talent? And that's what we're saying to our clients. If you want to do that, you better be higher performing than you probably are today. You better be inclusive. And if you want best results, you better be diverse. And they can decide. I always say, you don't need to be any of that. You can be non-performing or low-performing. You don't have to be diverse. I'm not saying you have to hire diverse people. You have to decide whether you want to be successful or not. I'm not saying you need to include people. Just leave all that knowledge sitting on cubicles or at desks or on Zoom or in the streets, but not have it inside your organization. And in the beginning of this century, a lot of the organizations that began the 21st century won't be around in 2030. We've already seen organizations disappear. What I'm hearing, Fred, is there has to be intention commitment on the part of an organization to want to change. Do you find, Fred, that some clients approach, approach you initially to work with you, but it becomes clear that that deep intention and commitment 
is not there? Yes. Most of the time, somewhere early in our process of fueling the client out, and potential client out, and deciding whether we want to work with them and they want to work with us, I end up talking to the CEO of the organization. And I want to know from that CEO what's their commitment. And one of the things that I've been saying to clients recently is, you have to change first. CEO, you have to change first. Senior leaders, you have to change first. People are tired of hearing people say, y'all have to change. Y'all have to be different. I need y'all to do this. And then the leaders stay exactly the way they were before. It doesn't work anymore. The leader has to say, and here's how I'm going to be different. Leading means sometimes being in front. Not always, but sometimes being in front. And on these issues around equity and around inclusion, around diversity, it is absolutely critical that the leaders of the organization show up, show up well, practice some new behaviors, and again and again and again reinforce their commitment to change. Because you know, I listen to radio talk shows all the time, and I listen to a variety of them. The conservative talk shows are beating up the word diversity. This morning when I was listening, they're trying to beat up the word inclusion. And so we got all this stuff going on with the governor of Florida and trying to outlaw everything that talks about difference and, and change and people. And, and so I am devoted to the corporate sector because it has a higher vested interest, well, a high, maybe not higher, high vested interest in having a unit of people function well. We were working with United Airlines before they did a merger with Northwestern. And I was talking to the CEO, Glenn Tilden at the time. And as he was talking about the organization, he says, Fred, what I need is a community of effort. And I love that. I think that's what an organization is. An organization is a community of effort. If you don't have a, people working together to accomplish something, you're not going to have your best success. And if you talk about people working together, they're a community or they're a team. They, you know, you look at all the great sports teams out there. Look at all the great athletes out there and working with others. They're a team. They know each other. They understand each other. They're part of each other. I got your back. You got my back. We work together. I understand whether you're left-handed or right-handed or left-footed or right-footed, so I know where to pass the ball. I need to know that about you. You can't be a stranger to me if we're going to be successful and be high-performing. The same thing is true in our organizations. People have to know each other. They don't have to know everything intimately about each other, but I got to know enough about you so we can do our best work together. And so that, that leader and that CEO needs to be given their all to the organization and leading the effort about changing and being different if they want the organization to be higher performing, be inclusive, be equitable, and be diverse. And I love, Fred, how your values are expressed even within your organization. Before, just before we spoke, I had a chance to meet Alison van der Bulgen, the legal counsel yes. of the organization. Right. And she said, I've been here 10 years. I look forward to coming to work. <laughs> it's good to hear. <laughs> I, yes, it's, but it's not me, it's the we. It's we as a group of people working together and creating an environment that works for all of us and all the variations that it requires. And so I'm honored to be with Allison and I'm honored to be with the other people here. And I learn and grow from them every day. We had a challenging situation yesterday about roles and responsibilities and all that. 
It was a great conversation. Probably somebody would look from the outside and say, oh, those people don't like each other. And like, no, we're having this conversation because we do like each other. And we want to each be better and be better individually and be better collectively. And it's that engagement and talking things through and working things out and finding ways that you can be better tomorrow than you were yesterday that makes for a great organization and great interactions. And differences are okay. <laughs> differences are not only very okay, they are desirable. I don't want a whole world of Fred Millers. I don't want to have an organization of Fred Millers. I want to have that diversity. I want to have that interaction. I learn from those differences. And that's a gift as we live as human beings on this planet. That was Marsha Lazarus speaking with Fred Miller. And this is the first part of a four-part interview, so stay tuned. And Gordon Park. Gordon Parks is most well-known for his photography. He was a trailblazer who was the first Black photographer for Life magazine, Hudson Mohawk magazine's correspondent. Sina Basilehiki visited the Albany Institute of Art and History exhibition with fellow photographer Robert Cooper. This entire exhibition is about children and the way children saw the world and the world saw these children that were black children in the South, in Harlem, in, and in Brazil. The series is, there are 40 photographs in this exhibition called Gordon Parks, I Too Am America. These are from a few series from Life magazine Correct. between the 40s and the 60s. Correct. So this is all, it spans a couple of decades of his career with Life magazine. So he was the first African-American photojournalist and photographer working for Life magazine. So he was a trailblazer. Hi, I'm Diane Shuchuk, a curator here at the Albany Institute of History and Art, and the curator that brought this amazing exhibition to Albany from the University of Wichita in Kansas. So I'm lucky that I get to work in a profession that I love where I learn something new every single day. And I get to introduce our Albany audience and our visitors from around the country to these amazing artifacts that we own and that we can also bring to Albany for all of everybody else to enjoy. So in this space, these fit perfectly in here. These are the only color photographs in the show, and they're all about community and revisiting Fort Scott, Kansas. So they're the, some of those powerful images that you see. And they did run in Life magazine. And what's really great about Gordon is he often wrote his own articles. He wrote the essays that accompanied these photos, and he was able to embed himself, and the people trusted him to capture them at these really kind of serene times when they were having hardships, when they were just enjoying life as well. Although this entire exhibition is about children. He also captures the story of Flavio in Rio de Janeiro, which he, he stayed in touch with Flavio for many, many years and brought him to America to get treated for medical treatment. He then reached out to him later on in life. So I think he really cared about his subjects and it shows, completely shows in these photographs about how much he related to the themes and how much he cared about all of these people. And then we have a couple of photos from when he um, was with Muhammad Ali in Florida. So these, again, show children interacting with Muhammad Ali. They may not be the most iconic photographs Gordon took of Muhammad Ali, but I think they're just as moving because they show a different sensitive side of him. That Muhammad Ali also cared about children. Do you think it's important that, we, that people are, are exposed not just to iconic photos, but see also that photos are spectrum and Personally, I've known that what I might consider an excellent photo, somebody else might not, and vice versa. So what makes an iconic photo, and what's the importance of showing non-iconic photos? For me, the importance of showing non-iconic photos is that you realize how much he took for each story, 
And then it was up to the editor to decide what ended up in the magazine. So Gordon may have thought that his entire series about a subject was important, but the editor then sort of honed it in on certain images. So I think the images that become iconic are the ones that are published. Published in um, newspapers and other periodicals and that got nationwide attention that way. And that's what's great about him because Life Magazine landed in the homes of millions of people. So millions of Americans opened Life Magazine up and saw these photographs and read Gordon's words or the words of the subjects. And that's what I think makes these photographs really special. You say there's, no, there's some of these photos here I've actually seen before, so there is some iconic right. photos here. Right, some are not, you know? Yeah. Like, so, so most people know this one of Ella, but they also know the one of Ella with like the American Gothic image of her, mm -hmm. holding the brooms and, and the American flag behind her, and that is not in this exhibition because there are no children in that photograph. No. So that, again, this is, this is um, a show focused on children's experiences in America and in Brazil. Muslim women, but this is not the photo. The, right. the one is where they're standing up. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's probably in that yeah. article, but mm -hmm. didn't end up in this exhibition. Yeah. yeah. So it's good to see that same essay from, you know, a different photo. Yeah. yeah. I agree. My name is Robert Cooper, and I'm a photographer and a journalist. One of the other very iconic images in this exhibition is in the other room with the uh, it's a color photograph in front of the store windows. Oh, yes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Showing Sorry. the segregation signs. Yeah. Well, I think that really hits home to people, especially the, those of us that live north. Where I, I mean, we didn't grow up in that time period. I mean, so I, didn't, I don't think everybody understands what it was really like to see these photographs and the crystal clear in color that says colored entrance or the water fountains separation for blacks and whites in one of the Gordon's other photographs. Segregation just looked different in the north. Correct. It just looked different, yeah. yeah. This family, so there's one, two, six children out of chain-linked fence looking into a playground. Mm -hmm. I believe he followed a family and he was really interested in, in focusing on more subtle imagery of segregation rather than the colored entrance that in the photos that we were just right. talking about. So these are all from Alabama. And these um, would have had captions underneath them in the essays. So those captions are not reflected in this exhibition. That's why I think it's important to actually see the magazines and to see what, um, how these were labeled and the titles of these articles. And, um, it is interesting to think about how you take a photo and put it in a little bit of a different context and your relationship changes. You have to guess in different ways or sometimes the information is helpful. Sometimes some people find descriptions like too influential. Correct. So as curators, it's our job to interpret the works for our audience. So we can interpret one object in many different ways depending on the theme of the exhibition. So we might look at this photograph and think about what everybody's wearing in the 1960s instead of what a civil rights theme. Or we could think about uh, the experience of shopping in Mobile, Alabama, instead of the uh, composition of the photograph. So it's up to the curator to decide what you want to tell your visitor about that particular image. And in this case, Gordon's words would be the most powerful to explain this, these images. And he was very charismatic, and he loved talking about his stuff. So if you haven't seen, there was a movie called A Choice of Weapons that was debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. We've shown it here. And it follows other black photographers influenced by Gordon Parks, but also has a lot of him on camera. And he had a very good long life, you know, and so he 
And he also um, was a filmmaker and a composer. He was truly a Renaissance man. He wasn't just a photographer. And I think that's what this exhibition doesn't capture really, but if you just Google him or go to the Gordon Parks Foundation's website, you will understand all the things this amazing man did during, throughout his entire life really, up to the end. Robert, what kind of observations are you making? I like the, uh, I mean, this is basically the black struggle in America from civil rights era. I like the contrast between the, you know, color photos of Mobile, Alabama, and then coming here and all the black and white photos. So I like this great depth of variety of photography from Mr. Parks that we don't usually see. We usually see the same old photos. This is definitely a, a unique, different perspective, and I, I appreciate the fact that they didn't go with the everyday photo that you see from Mr. Parks. There's something about the darkness of the black and white, and I like, I appreciate that because it gives off a, a different mood. It makes it real moody. Like some like even today, photographers with digital photography, they will raise, you know, the, uh, exposure to make them make the photos not so dark but I appreciate especially like this one has some really serious deep contrast and even when I shoot film I try to find the deepest contrasting black and white films I could find like this this is the mood that you want to create I mean this is not a happy joyful photo so the, the dark contrast and the shadows and the where they need to be. Would the really bright trend Instagram really influence this like bright commercial look? Do you think that's kind of ruined our idea of darkening photos? I think so. And there's also this, this like the photo that you see in this exhibit, you're not going to see taken by black photographers today because they all want to create photos of happiness and joy. So you're not gonna get this, you know, real life struggle. Even if it is in the ghetto, they're still gonna make them smiling. <laughs> you know, so these kind of photos, you're not gonna see too much anymore. This is Sina Bazilahiki reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. The exhibition, I Too Am America by Gordon Parks, has extended its viewing at the Albany Institute of Art and History to February 19th. More information at www.albanyinstitute.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And we thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley for headlines and production. Other segments by Willie Terry, Marsha, Lazarus, Sina Basilihiki, and yours truly, Andrea Kamle. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>